This was the scene in Orlando yesterday. Three playoff games were scheduled to be played. All of them postponed after the Milwaukee Bucks decided, you know what, we're not going to take the court. Their game against the Orlando Magic postponed. Two other games also postponed as the NBA and its players deal with an issue that's bigger than basketball. A Celtics legend also weighing in, Bill Russell, tweeting out, in 61, I walked out of an exhibition game much like the NBA players did yesterday. I'm one of the few people that knows what it felt like to make such an important decision. I am so proud of these young guys. It reminded me of this. You see the headline, Russell would give up basketball for rights. That was nearly 60 years ago, and here we are having some of the same conversations. Hello, everyone. I'm Kyle Draper, joined by Brian Scalabrini. Scal, the Celtics were supposed to be opening up their playoff series against the Toronto Raptors tonight, game one. Instead, the focus on something much greater than in between the lines. Yeah, I mean, they made it clear from the very beginning when we go down to the bubble and play, we're going to be playing for something more, and they're not going to ignore the social injustices. Yeah, exactly, and, and that was the, the thing when they went down to Orlando. They wanted to have their messages heard. Here we are two months in, and obviously the players are not happy with what is going on in our country right now. Let's bring in two guys, two near and dear friends of mine, A. Sherrod Blakely, our Celtics insider for NBC Sports Boston, and Chris Mannix as well. Mannix is down there in Orlando. But I want to start with you, Sherrod. Here we are a little more than 24 hours removed from the postponement of these NBA playoff games. Just give me your thoughts and feelings right now. Well, right now, I think the players, you know, they had no idea, the Milwaukee Bucks players had no idea what would be the fallout from them, uh, you know, not willing, being willing to play. And I think the fallout has been greater than they anticipated. Uh, they were just in texting a couple of players in the bubble. The one thing that they uh, responded to me with was saying that Milwaukee's decision and the decisions that followed, that was a warning shot to the rest of the NBA that, or the rest of the, frankly, the pro basketball world and the pro sports world, that they're serious about making sure that these issues that they talked about outside the bubble will continue to be issues that are being talked about even while they're in the bubble. The one thing that uh, one of the players who got back to me said that they were surprised at wasn't the NBA players in the bubble reaction, but how it spiraled outside of the bubble where you had other leagues, other players in, with different teams outside also willing to take a step back and step off the field and that has to be very nerve-wracking for ownership because now you, you've got to be thinking if this is just what happens after you know one league decides to basically shut it down for a day or two just imagine if they decide to shut it down for an, an even longer period of time and the domino effect that's going to have on other pro leagues those are some of the issues that certainly as owners try to figure out how to make this this thing work and, can, and keep the players in the bubble happy those are some of the things that have to be weighed and, and Manic, you're down there in Orlando. You're down there on the NBA campus. Take me through the Milwaukee Bucks' decision to not play to today where we stand right now and just how the last 24 hours played out down there in Orlando. Well, the Bucks' decision not to play, I wouldn't define it as spur of the moment, but it definitely wasn't something that was long planned. And I say this because when I was waiting there outside that locker room for something to happen, as the players came out to use the restroom, which is around the corner, they were all in uniform. So these players came to the arena prepared to play. And, you know, Scout can attest this. I mean, you put your uniform on within an hour or so of 
going out and playing in the game. And these guys didn't, they said, had their uniforms on. Uh, the aftermath of that was really interesting because I know there were some players, a lot of players that were upset by uh, this, this situation unfolding without them knowing. The Bucks kind of made this decision unilaterally. They said, we're going to do this. We're going to do this on our own. And other players didn't know. And I think players wanted to hear from the Bucks and ask why they didn't bring them into the fold. But that's kind of how it all materialized over the last, you know, 12 hours or so. And here we are with players this morning deciding they were going to play. Yeah, it's interesting, Scal, because last night there was talk that the Lakers and Clippers had voted to leave the bubble, not finish out the NBA postseason. Now, today, it seems like the games will return, maybe as early as tomorrow. The NBA put out a statement. Scout, give me your thoughts on, on the stand that these guys are making and how close they came to actually not finishing out the postseason. I don't think they came close at all, Kyle. I think they thought about the collective bargaining agreement moving forward. They thought about the pandemic and negotiating a collective bargaining agreement in, this, in, in these times. They probably thought about the amount of money that they would make next year. And they're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's just sit out one or two games then. So the threat of I'm going to be out of here, there was no way they were going to fall So you think it that. was an empty threat then? You, you think Hundred, uh, Kyle, right now would you want to negotiate your contract? If you were – if you were an NBA player going into next season, would you want your contract to be ripped up right now? So, so, listen, so what I'm, you're telling me then, Scal, is all this is just for show. That's what I'm hearing from you. Is that what you're saying? No. All right. Tell me then what you're saying. Because if they weren't going to follow through on the threats, why make the threats anyway? No, they said that we're going to sit out and then they have these the meetings. And then when the meetings go and they talk to their agents and they find out the amount of money that they would lose – they, they uh, immediately they say we're going to re resume the season. So it's not empty threats, Kyle. They did what they did. And there's no games today and there'll be no games tomorrow. And then they'll get back after it. And then th this thing will move on. Mannix, what do you think about Kyle, that? Kyle. How, uh, how, how close were these guys coming to, you know, walking away? I, I would imagine some guys, you know, really considered it. I, I lean more towards Scal on this one, Kyle. I mean, even the, even the Lakers and the Clippers who – voted not to play and voted not to continue with the season. There were a lot of people in that room that I talked to that didn't see it as like a vote. Like the Lakers didn't leave that room and players in that room didn't think, all right, that's the last we're going to see of the Lakers and Clippers. And sure enough, 12 hours later, uh, they turn around and they're willing to continue on with this season. I, I think there are players deeply, deeply affected by what's happened over the last three or four days, but the number of players that were willing to get up and leave and and walk away from all this, I, I really think it wasn't that many. Sherrod, let's bring well, you in on this. Uh, what do you think the players' uh, thought process was these last 24 hours? Well, I think, first first of all, I, I think there's a lot of truth to what Scal and, and Mannix are saying. But the one thing I, I will say is this. Players ultimately had to decide, are we going to come any closer to achieving our goals by walking away? And I think that was the question more so than the money. And I, yes, the money, there's no question. The money plays a factor in this. But if you have a very clear goal and you stay true to yourself that that goal is to bring about systemic change and, and keep these issues resonating inside and outside the bubble, is walking away, going back to wherever you're from, getting out there protesting, is that going to advance your cause? And I think ultimately, at the end of the day, the players realize that's not going to get it done. And so to, for me... 
the, from the player's perspective, I think it was a pretty easy decision to stay in a bubble because, again, it doesn't advance the cause that you're fighting for by leaving the bubble and creating a lot of chaos, not only with you and your individual situation, but the trickle-down effect of them leaving the bubble and what that means to the CBA and just what that does to employees in all facets of, of, of work. Uh, it's, it's just way – there's far too much to lose by them walking away than the game. And one more thing to add to this. The owners could rip up the CBA this offseason as well. Don't act like just because they're in the bubble and they finish this season out that the owners can't say, you know what, these times right now, well, we might want to renegotiate our CBA. So let's, let's be real here that that could also happen this offseason. Yeah, I want to show you guys exactly how we got to this point. You know, the events that have transpired over the last 24, 36 hours. So the Bucks decided to boycott their game against the Magic just minutes before tip-off. The Magic could have accepted that forfeit, took the win, but they said, you know what, we're not going to do that. The NBA wound up postponing all three games scheduled for Wednesday. Now, the Bucks players did have a meeting with Wisconsin Lieutenant Governor and the Attorney General, a general about ways to take action. Players and coaches inside the bubble also met last night to discuss options for the postseason. And then today, the NBA Board of Governors met. The league decided to postpone all of today's games, including the Celtics and the Raptors. The players met again, decided to continue the postseason, but they hope to find new ways to deliver social justice, justice messages. And the owners in NBA PA scheduled a meeting for Thursday night to discuss the next steps. Maddox, how much do you think the players' goal was to put pressure on the owners, uh, not necessarily to go out there and, and donate, but really to move closer to coming up with some sort of actionable items, not just rhetoric, not just talk? I, I don't know if that was – that's kind of where they ended up, right? Because when they got through with the games being postponed and they got in that meeting room and they spoke about wanting change when it came to police reform and when it came to voting rights to significant topics in that room, there was only one place they could really go with it to expect tangible results, and that's to the ownership groups of their respected teams. And Look, one question I have had in the aftermath of, of players turning to owners is that I actually think owners have done a pretty good job in this process. I mean, owners have worked with players every step of the way on this restart when it comes to social justice. They have worked with the players on the message on the back of jerseys. They have uh, worked with the players when it comes to wanting to kneel during the national anthem. They, as recently as uh, two weeks ago, three weeks ago now, they contributed $300 million towards empowering economics in black communities. Like you can sit there and say that's just a percentage of their worth, but $300 million over 10 years is actual money. So I don't look at the owners as having done nothing. And I can tell you from talking to different ownership sources that they're not looking at it that way. And, you know, They're looking to work with players to do more to help them get their message out, to do whatever they can. But they're sitting there saying, we've done a lot. Like we've we've tried to, to be a part of all this. This, all, that's what's happening is not on our doorstep. You know, and Sherrod, you know, w one thing I'm hearing from players, and I totally understand their frustration, you know, as, as young black men in America, and when you see your brothers, your sisters, your children, your fathers, your uncles, whatever it may be, uh, go through these kind of issues, there's a level of frustration out there. And we've heard from Jalen Brown. He's been one of the most outspoken members of the NBA. And I'm, I applaud him. 23 years old. And we've talked, you know, so much about how he's excelled on the court. He's growing off the court as well. Tell me about the leadership role he's taken during all this. 
Well, there's no question that Jalen Brown, you know, as you pointed out, Kyle, he's 23 years old. But if you didn't know better, you'd think he was a 23-year veteran uh, of the NBA, the, the way, just the way he carries himself, the way he's comfortable uh, in positions of, of influence. And for, for him, you know, it's it, this whole process has been really frustrating because, you know, Jalen Brown is starting to realize, I think, firsthand what a lot of us who are of an older set have come to unfortunately realize that no matter how much education, no matter how much status, no matter how much financial pull you may have, there is still a segment of society that will never see you as anything other than just a black body with little to no value. And that for Jalen Brown is extremely frustrating. And, and to his credit, he's trying to do what he can to elevate the conversation, to get people to understand that and look to make change. Uh, and being in a bubble, it's been a challenge for him. It's been a challenge for a lot of players to keep that, that momentum that they felt they had prior to going to the bubble alive. And that is really what all these, you know, protests and, and, and players deciding to not play has been about. It has been a mechanism to change the, the, the arc, if you will, of how this whole protest movement is going. And that is to get it back on the minds and in the hearts and in the thoughts of people both inside the bubble and outside. Scott, I'm going to come to you now with this JB23 uh, outspoken, said he supports the Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, he's been one of the, the, the loudest voices down there in Orlando. Just uh, what do you think about him, you know, putting himself out there doing this? And, and just the nature of an athlete in today's world, uh, you can throw LeBron James, Chris Paul, whoever you want in that mix, being outspoken on these kind of issues. Yeah, I mean, I think it's great that he has that uh, platform and he uses it. Those aren't easy things to do. It's not uh, to put yourself out there, like right now, it's, it's tough time. So I think it's awesome that he's young, so young, and, and able to do it. Yeah, and Mannix, uh, so the NBA is saying Friday, maybe Saturday. What are you hearing down there about the Celtics and when they actually might play? And, you know, how do the players, I guess, return to the floor but also keep that message alive? Yeah, I mean, I think Saturday is more likely is what I'm hearing down here uh, with the resumption of the season with the Celtics probably going on Sunday if you line it up on that calendar. I would say in moving forward, it, it might be beneficial for players to do more to refine their message. You know, and I'll give an example. Like throughout the time being down here, I've sat in and talked to players about uh, Brianna Taylor, the EMT from Louisville who was killed back in March. Uh, and players have routinely, regularly, almost daily, ask for justice for Breonna Taylor. What they want is the arrest of these police officers. But when I talk to legal experts, one thing they tell me is that prosecution of those police officers is next to impossible. So over the next like month or so, uh, as players are, are using their platforms, they're only going to get bigger and bigger as these games get bigger and bigger. I think refining that message is going to be important. There's a lot of things that equal justice, I think, for Breonna Taylor. It's eliminating no-knock warrants, increasing increasing police training, uh, getting cops like these off the street. Uh, I, I think that refining that message and focusing on things that they can change or they can show people will change by voting, I think that could be uh, beneficial. Yeah, and, and one thing, and I mentioned it on some of the, uh, our other shows, you look at the gun lobby, NRA, big money, lobbying Congress, lobbying lawmakers. You look at the pharmaceutical companies, they lobby. You look at, you know, other, the tobacco industry, they have a lobby. But where's the equal rights, you know? Where, where, where's the, the social justice? Where's the, we're against police brutality? And so if I'm a player, that's one thing. You know, you talk to the owners about money, 
and trying to lobby your local, state, and federal leaders to get some change being done. All right, we got more with these guys coming up in just a little bit as we continue our Bigger Than Basketball special. Here's a look at Jalen Brown, who won't stop. I'm going to do everything I can while I'm here to pull the next person or to make people aware of that. And it was way too much that I had to, to battle against or the way too much people in society, not enough opportunity for people to be able to get to a level of success in this country, especially people that look like me. So um, I'm not going to stop talking. I'm not going to shut up. I'm not going to be silent. I feel like I got an obligation to not just my community, but my family as well and to the next generation coming to continue the conversation now, let's check in with Abby, who's with a special guest. I'm joined now by Stephanie Reddy of TNT and NBA TV. She is inside the bubble in Orlando. Stephanie, you were set to cover the other game going on, the second game, the Rockets and the Thunder. So you were in the arena. What have the last 24, 36 hours been like for you seeing all of this unfold? Abby, thanks so much for having me on, first of all. Um, it has been a whirlwind. Um, I mean, as you mentioned, I was in the arena. We were expecting that game to go on. The only reason why my antenna went up when I saw players leaving the court while warming up was because the previous game when the Milwaukee Bucks never came out to the court, and so we realized what was potentially happening in our building. Um, but the Thunder, they were out there, not the whole team, but there were a couple of players and coaches out there shooting and warming up. And there were some Houston Rockets assistant coaches on the bench waiting for players to come out to warm up. So both, both sides thought they were going to be competing in a game starting at 630, and things changed very quickly. No question about it. You have been on the scene. What have the players been talking to you about, and, and what are some of the messages that they do want to get out there? Yeah, great question. Um, and I will say that your Boston Celtics have been playing a huge role in this whole thing because, as you know, Abby, it was the Celtics and the Raptors that had that initial first team meeting, joint team meeting, when they were discussing possibly sitting out the game that was scheduled for tonight. Um, that kind of put that out in the atmosphere, um, and, and they kind of led the way. And then in particular, Jalen Brown has been very vocal in these team, in these player meetings, excuse me. And I, I've talked to a few players who have said that he has been among the leaders. Obviously, Chris Paul is the president of the NBPA, and Andre Iguodala is one of the vice presidents, but Jalen Brown also is. And they said the three of those have been the vocal voices, uh, very passionate and leading the way, and they've done an excellent job. So you guys in Boston should be very proud of your team and specifically of Jalen Brown. But the sentiment overall of these players is they want to get back to action. You know, they want to play games, but they also want their messages heard. And I think that's where it gets confusing for them. They're torn because they want to play, but they don't want their play to become a distraction and detract from their messaging. So I think they're really, really working hard to try to figure out how they can accomplish both goals. Stephanie, thank you so much for taking the time. And I, what I know is a very busy day. I, I truly appreciate it. It's my pleasure, Abby. Anytime for you. In a sense, you kind of feel very helpless. Here in the bubble, you feel like you want to do more. I feel like I should be out there protesting and what a lot of people are doing right now. Um, but I'm here uh, in a bubble playing basketball. I do think the NBA has done a great job initially to kind of give us the platform 
to 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 speak on certain things and things like that. But I do kind of feel like it is kind of lessened as the playoffs have gotten started. Things have kind of diminished. I'm curious to see in what creative ways that people put their minds together to to continue to push these conversations and make you know me feel more comfortable about playing basketball. All right, back here on Bigger Than Basketball, Kyle Draper, A. Sherrod Blakely, and I'm joined by Cedric Maxwell. His number is hanging in the garden, 1981 NBA Finals MVP. All right, Max, tell me your thoughts on uh, what you just heard Jalen Brown said in just the last 24 hours for the NBA. I couldn't be happier and could be more proud of how these gentlemen have conducted themselves. Uh, it is a, a transition. It's something that you look at players and you understand who they are. They're young players, but they've, they've taken on a stance to me, which is invaluable because what they're going to do is lead by example. And I love the, the, the promise, the hope. And when you see a guy like Jalen Brown, who is so young, it has just resonated to me just how good a position we are with our younger players and just thinking about who the Celtics are. I, um, my only thing I wonder about now when the players are talking about protesting the game and boycotting and not playing games, I'm like, this isn't, this isn't checkers. This is chess. So what is the end game for the players? That's what I start thinking about when they start talking about not playing games. If you take yourself away from the microphone, then what happens is now you're out of the eyesight of the general public, your individual. When you're collective as a group, then it's a bigger presence. I agree, Sharad. Uh, you know, being collective and unified as a group. With that being said, how much can the players do and how much is on us as individuals in society to help bring about change? Well, the, the challenge that I, I think a lot of black folks outside of the bubble have that's similar to what the players are dealing with inside the bubble is that you feel as though you are in a bubble. I mean, they're literally in one where they can't leave that campus. And for many of us in the field of journalism, for many of us who have certain feelings, we want to have this certain professional persona about us. Uh, we don't want to seem as though we're trying to you know, have any agenda other than to try to be balanced. But you know what? There's some issues that are bigger and more impactful than basketball, that are more bigger impactful than our profession. And we're in that type of fight right now. Um, I applaud Jalen Brown and, and a lot of those players down there for really trying to come up with ways to keep the story, to keep the narrative of systemic change being at the forefront of people's thoughts, ideas, and, and things of that nature. And for us on the outside, I think our role is to do whatever we can to magnify that, to make sure that we can be the change that we want to see, uh, that we are doing the things that we are capable of doing and that we are continuing to progress uh, in, in this, this fight for, for this country, because that's really what this is about. We're all that we're asking for is to be treated like any other American. That's that's what we're talking about. I mean, why? I mean, when, when a white guy walks down the street and he's going to get a latte, he doesn't have to worry about someone grabbing their purse if he walks past, even though he probably has more money than, than they do. Uh, those are issues that black men have dealt with for as long as I've been alive. And I've, I applaud these players for trying to do their part to change the narrative uh, of how black men are seen. And Max, to Sherrod's point, and, and, and this is what frustrates me so much 
uh, about this issue uh, because you have a segment of the population out there that says these athletes get paid millions. What do they have to complain about? Until you have to drive home in the middle of the night and you get pulled over and you say, you know what, I got to call my wife to have a witness on the phone just in case something pops off. Or until you walk into a doctor's office and you hear a four-year-old little girl point at you and say, look, mom, there's the bad man. Or until you have an older white lady look at you in your face and put up a cross sign and say, I hope you burn in hell, you don't understand. But yet people aren't listening, Max. And so that's what frustrates me the most. What are players supposed to do? What are we supposed to do to actually get people not only to listen, but to feel us? Well, I think what we keep talking about is the same thing. And I believe that, let's just make it straight. Let's cut to the chase. Please. This didn't happen, this didn't happen yesterday. This doesn't happen tomorrow. Racism is not going away, you know, by a click of a switch or by these players kneeling. Racism is alive and well because we continue to let it be that way. As I was telling a friend of mine, I said, he was telling me about how he teaches his son, and he was a white guy, teaches his son, said, if you're pulled over by the police, cooperate with them and, and make sure you, you stay calm. I tell my son the exact opposite. I tell my son, Son, if you get stopped, put both your hands outside the window and then say, here are my hands. There will be no problems. And he said, well, I don't have to do I said, I understand. You don't have to do that. And I said, that is the general thing that we're trying to talk about of, of just being black in America. Doc Rivers said something to me that is going to go down like Martin Luther King. When Doc Rivers said that we love America, and I'm paraphrasing it here, but America doesn't love us back. My kids and my kids' kids will hear that line forever because it was, it was precise, it was passionate, and it was to a point. Doc Rivers' father was a police officer, so he's lived on that side of the street. And Doc Rivers is a black man who's lived in this country. So, I think this just went a long ways when I think about how we are as a society and where we need to go. And Sherrod, I, I agree with everything Max says. You know, I, I feel like, you know, our skin color at times is being weaponized out there. And, and for those people that say, well, Jalen got millions, LeBron got millions. Let's talk about where they came from. Yeah. You, know, uh, well, you know, before the millions, before any of that. They were young black men, young black boys in America, Sherrod. And you know what? They're still young black men in America because when you talk about the economic advances that a lot of these NBA players made, and it's certainly, it is something that is worth taking note of. As you know, Max mentioned earlier, Doc Rivers, his house got burned down in San Antonio because he was black. He was still an NBA player, still making millions. That did not stop his house from getting burned down. When you look at Sterling Brown in Milwaukee, getting pulled over, tasered, because he was parked illegally in, at 1, 2 o'clock in the morning in front of a drugstore? His and nobody was players, there. That didn't do him any good. <laughs> it didn't do him any good. I mean, you, you start going down the line. There are example after example after example of affluent black men who are, frankly, they're living the American dream, and yet they're dealing with things that 
if they were white, you know, damn well they wouldn't be dealing with. And that to me is this, that's when I think about what Doc Rivers said the other day that, that Max uh, pointed out, that's the hurtful part. That's the hurtful part. We have tried to do things by the playbook that we're giving. Go to a good school, keep your nose out of trouble, do all those things. And yet we still find, even when we do have all those, check off all those boxes, we still are treated less than human. And let, let's, let's say this. And, and, and here's the thing we're I'll say. We're, we're, we're not angry. We're just telling the truth. This is how this is, is worked. That we are just telling you the basic truth. That all you want is a chance to live fair. We want your kids to grow up in situations. And what I applaud about these young black men or these young players right now is the fact that they have put their monies where their mouth is. LeBron James went out and built a school to educate people in Akron. And if they graduated from his school, they are given a scholarship to go to college. This is how we're going to impact the next generation, that these players have to take a stand. You might not like it, but if they take a stand and they're doing something positive, that's how we're going to move forward. That is how we're going to, damn it, move forward. And Max LeBron said it the other day, we're scared. Black people are scared. But I'm going to take it a step further. We're hurt right now. You know, we're sad right now. Here we are in 2020, and we're still dealing with the same issues our parents dealt with, our grandparents dealt with. You know, this is a, 2020 has been a crazy year. We know that. But we're hurting right now, and I guess we want people to listen to us and feel us and feel, you know, our pain. Um, with that being said, Max, you've been a member of the Celtics organization for years. Uh, mm -hmm. We're seeing not only the players, but ownership, you know, speak out and take a stand as well. Uh, how impactful do you think ownership, the franchise, the league can be in all of this? Well, here's the thing that I believe. When you start seeing people of color here in Boston, the three of us right now on air, how can I be in Boston for 25 years and essentially be the only analyst for one of these teams as a play-by-play -play guy? That you have that you have the Patriots, you have the, the Bruins, you have soccer. And we have to change that in, in a sense, even with the Celtics. I've, I've talked to the ownership and said that you have to have more black representation in the front office. I'm not asking for a job, but I want there. That is how you're going to have people being included in situations when you have people in positions of power who are making decisions. Like when people ask me questions about it, they say, well, Max, how do you feel? And that, well, I feel a certain way, but I don't have the power to make a change. I want to see people in the Boston area in a situation where they are in management that they can cause and they can make change. Sherrod, uh, 30 to 45 seconds, final thoughts. You know, just kind of piggybacking off what, what Max said, you know, he he's talking about having a, a voice in the room. Uh, there are there are places and locations where the decisions are made. And frankly, when it comes to people of color, we're not in those rooms. So when people make those decisions, they go with what they feel is the right fit. And often that fit is whatever they see when they walk past the mirror. And guess what? Don't look like us. 
And that and that it's it's an issue in Boston. It's an issue in a lot of cities. So that to me, Max is spot on. I mean, until we start getting at the core of what a lot of the issues are, which is having more decision makers, we're just going to be running this 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 marathon over and over again with no end in sight. All right, Aisha Rod Blakely and Cedric Maxwell, thanks for joining us. Great conversation as always, fellas. We hope to continue this conversation and uh, really enact some change in our country. You're watching Bigger Than Basketball. I'll leave you with this. Uh, as a black man in America, I want the same things that you want. I want to be treated equally. I want to live in a safe neighborhood. I want to raise my kids and let them have a proper education. Let them have equal opportunity to go out there and live their dreams. I'm Kyle Draper. Thanks for joining us on Bigger Than Basketball.